While you're turning in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26, Acts chapter 26, as we uh, continue in our series through the book of Acts and are just now a, a couple of Sundays away, Lord willing, from completing uh, the, the book, um, let me uh, recognize at least that we've not read chapter 25. We're not going to read chapter 25 today. We will read all of chapter 26. Um, but last week, the first 12 verses of 25 belonged with uh, chapter 24. The remaining uh, verses of chapter 25 really fit part of the same story that takes place in 26. In a lot of ways, verses 13 through the end of the, the chapter um, in Acts 25 are a, are a setup for the rest of the chapter. And, and you can read that later, but... At this point, Paul, of course, has been in custody for um, over two years. Uh, initially, um, Felix, the governor uh, in Caesarea, kept Paul uh, in prison for two years. Uh, Festus, his replacement, has heard the case, has heard Paul's story, Um and has essentially decided that, that Paul is innocent, that there's nothing he's done wrong, certainly nothing, no violation of Roman law that would demand uh, death. But Paul has appealed to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman uh, citizen, to appeal essentially to the highest court in the land, uh, the, the, the Roman Empire Supreme Court, as it were. And so that means that the case has to go to Caesar, and there's no other decision that can be made along the way. But there is um, a problem. Festus has a problem, and this is this is the end of chapter 25. We sort of learn uh, the situation. Festus, in order to send Paul and the case itself to Rome, he has to send um, a letter, a report, some evidence of findings and charges and things against Paul. And he doesn't know what to write. He's, he's struggling because he doesn't have anything to tell Caesar. Well, this is what he's done, and this is the problem, and this is why he's appealed to you. He's convinced Paul is innocent um, and doesn't have a real good understanding of the case, certainly of Roman law. There's no Roman law being violated here. Well, that's when um, Agrippa and Bernice show up, and Agrippa is... Uh, King Bernice is his sister wife, um, and uh, Agrippa agrees to hear the matter from Paul. Um, he stayed long enough that that Festus kind of gave him a report of of the case of the situation. I've got this guy in prison, and I can't figure out what to write. Could you help me out? And Agrippa uh, essentially agrees to hear the matter. And Festus thinks this is his way out. This is his escape from responsibility. Agrippa will be able to help and solve the problem. Um, and that's where uh, chapter 26 begins. So chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. 
I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, and for this hope I am accused by Jews, and King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them, <clears throat> and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would, said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer, and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? 
And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, uh, your word is a, uh, a light to our path, uh, a lamp to our path, a light to our feet. Uh, it is wisdom. Uh, it is, and we, we pray that you would teach us, um, that we would hear and understand and know and believe and embrace and be changed by all to the honor and glory of Christ. We pray for your word to work in us. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I think many of us, um, and for a variety of reasons, many of us are actually afraid of gospel opportunities. Uh, we're afraid of evangelism opportunities um, when they come our way. And for a variety of reasons, some um, for something as simple as I feel like I don't know enough. I just don't know enough uh, to say. Well, then, you know, so do we study to solve that problem? Others of us are afraid that uh, we'll say the wrong thing or we'll say things in the wrong way and we just won't be clear. Uh, we're concerned that in certain situations, we just won't have the words. We just won't be prepared. Which, of course, reminds us of what, what Jesus said, what Luke wrote. I mean, yeah, what Luke wrote back in Luke chapter 12, uh, where Jesus promises his hearers that, look, the day is coming when you not just might, but will stand before people who will demand an explanation, who will demand a defense from you. And Jesus goes on to say, don't worry, the Holy Spirit will help you. The Holy Spirit will give you words to say. He will guide and direct you. That's Luke chapter 12, particularly verse 12. Well, that's kind of Paul's situation here in Acts 26. Uh, in fact, I bet he's somewhat surprised. He's appeared to Felix numerous times over and over again. He's appeared to Festus. I, I would imagine that when the guard comes to get him, he says, Paul, you're, you're coming out and it's, you know, you're going to meet and come and give your defense. You can almost imagine Paul going, Festus again. And, you know, the guard going, well, actually, it's, a, it's King Agrippa this time. Um, Paul was probably somewhat surprised to discover that it was more than just Festus, but that actually Agrippa was there. His defense here in chapter 26 isn't so much a legal one. He's appealed to Caesar, and therefore um, Caesar must decide the case. In fact, you saw that right there at the end of the chapter. Agrippa himself says he could walk if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. So Agrippa's hearing Paul out, but he's doing so to help Festus, not because he's actually going to adjudicate the case. 
and most of chapter 26 is Paul recounting his conversion for Agrippa. And that's the third time we've heard it, uh, Acts 9, Acts 22, and then again here in chapter 26. But Agrippa is Jewish, and Agrippa understands Judaism. He understands the law. He knows the customs and the controversies, as Paul said about him earlier. And so he would have been, um, would have had a, an interest in the things that Paul is saying here. Notice first, Paul begins with the old, verses 4 through 12. The, the reality is, Paul's story is known to the Jews. He's told it um, once before to these folks, but he, he would have been famous enough. He would have been well known. He had come up under Gamaliel, the Harvard Law School of um, Jewish rabbinical training. Uh, he was a Pharisee, a member of the most conservative um, group of Jews uh, they had, the strictest party in Judaism. And he strongly believed the Bible as they had it in the Old Testament. He had his Old Testament and he strongly, staunchly believed it and understood it and sought to live it out. And you can see in verse 6, Paul actually points out in verse 6, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. He's actually claiming it's because of what God has said in the Old Testament that I am standing here on trial before you. And, and this has been his story all along. This has been the same thing he has said over and over again for the last several chapters since he was arrested, since he was beaten and, and arrested in the temple. He's obviously not still a Pharisee, but he still very strongly believes the Old Testament and leans on and trusts the Old Testament. He's not arrested because he's a Pharisee, but he does continue to believe the same things that the Pharisees themselves believed. It's verse 6. It's because of this hope in the promise that God made to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes... Did you notice the pronoun? Paul's actually including Agrippa and, and much of his audience in this, uh, this group of people. He can say, these are this was our fathers because you are a Jew, Agrippa. And because the Pharisees and those who accuse me, it's our father... They are our fathers that, to whom God gave this hope, this promise. But what's the hope? What's the promise? What is it exactly that, that Paul is referring to? Well, let me, let me back you up and just show you that this has been Paul's story all along. Turn back to chapter 23, verse 6. When Paul perceived that one part of the Sadducee, one part were Sadducees, the other Pharisees, and, and this is... Paul before the council. Um, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Chapter 24, verse 15. 
Paul again says, um, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Chapter 26, verse 8, having talked about the hope in verse 6, hope in the promise made by our fathers to which the 12 tribes, verse 8, <clears throat> verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I, I almost picture Paul, uh, and I may even maybe even did this when I read it. it. It almost you almost picture him turning from Agrippa to kind of the room to whoever's there, arms out, confused, concerned look on his face. Why do you people think it's odd that God would raise the dead? Why is it at all surprising to you? Why would you find that incredible? But you can see Paul's conviction is that there is, there will be a resurrection, a bodily resurrection for the just and the unjust. And the Pharisees have been teaching that all along. So Paul's not going around teaching things that are contrary even to the truth of the Pharisees. Well, with one exception. See, the Pharisees have this notion of a resurrection one day, at the last day. But they can't admit that Jesus was raised from the dead. See, they have this concept, they have this notion, this idea of a, a resurrection at the last day. And that resurrection, that teaching is, is Old Testament teaching. It's biblical teaching. We've seen people earlier who held that belief despite the fact that the New Testament wasn't written yet and wasn't completed and, and wasn't teaching them. But they can't admit that Christ was raised because then they have to admit that he had some saving power and authority, that he was God in the flesh. Paul had, as a strict Pharisee, he had at one time been a persecutor of the church, verses 9 through 12. He had permission from Jewish authorities, a letter that he was carrying with him to uh, persecute believers, men and, and women, to arrest them. And even when they were put to death for their blasphemy, he would try to trick them into blaspheming. And then when they did, he voted with the majority to put them to death. So he's a, uh, he's a persecutor, he's a murderer, um, and, and he did this not just in Jerusalem, but in other places as well. Verse 11, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I, I went to the Jewish council. Look, you know, we're, we seem to be solving the problem here in Jerusalem. But what about these other places where the believing Jews have, Christian Jews have, have left and scattered and feared for their life? They've gone to Damascus. Can I go chase them and bring them back here to stand trial? That's what he was doing. Verse 12, he was traveling to Damascus to go and, and collect. There were plenty of, of Christians to persecute there. And so he was on his way to arrest and perhaps even put Christians to death. 
But I want you to notice something about Paul's description of his past self, of his old life, of old Paul. You know, you can tell your story. You can share your testimony. You can, you can tell the, your own life story, your conversion story, in a way that doesn't celebrate the evil and sinfulness and wickedness of the old man. You know, there are people here, people here, people today, uh, in believers in the world today who think that really, in order to truly glorify Jesus, um, we have to publicly um, celebrate our our past, our wickedness, our evil, our old man. Paul's not celebrating the old. He's merely recounting a history that's true. When you and I have opportunity to share our testimony and, and, and in telling your story, there is an old to talk about. There is an old man of some sort, whatever that might look like, that we have to talk about, but we can do it in a way that doesn't glory in the wickedness and, and rejoice in the sinfulness of the old man. It's not to be celebrated or rejoiced in or honored or glorified in any way. It's part of our story and, and needs to be told um, insofar as it needs to be told. But the reality is the old points to a new who is new because of Jesus. And with that, Paul turns to the new. First the old, then the new, verses, beginning in verse 13. Paul's conversion, we know the story, took place on the way to Damascus. He was traveling uh, there, and, and in the middle of the day, a bright light appears to him and to those around him, and they can see the light, and it was blinding, and it meant that he lost his sight, and... and for, um, until he got to Ananias, who restored his sight, um, and and the the voice uh, calling out to him, which apparently he only heard, the people around him didn't. Uh, in Hebrew, using his Hebrew name Saul, God doesn't change Paul's name from Saul to Paul. There's a Hebrew and Greek version of his name, uh, but in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's traveling to persecute Christians. And persecuting Christians is persecuting Jesus. I've made this uh, point at least once or twice before. We'll make it again uh, just because we need this kind of comfort. Jesus so identifies with his people that when we, as Christians, are being persecuted, Jesus is being persecuted with us. Goads are kind of a, a long, pointy pole. Your your farm animal, your mule, whatever is not doing what they're supposed to do. You can give them a poke. You can give them a prod. Uh, sometimes they would 
would kick back at it. Well, you can, you know, you kick back at a long pointy stick. Um, you're not going to kick back at that a, very many times. You're not just not gonna uh, kick back at that a lot. It, it'll hurt and it's difficult, and and you end up not getting your way. And and inevitably, what it means is that the farmer who is kind of poking you along ends up getting you to do what they want you to do, regardless of what you want. See, the reality is Jesus has a plan for Paul, and Paul can't thwart that plan. Not just a plan for Paul, but a plan for his church. Paul wants the church crushed. Paul wants believers put to death the name of Christ expunged from the annals of history, um, gospel preaching uh, put to an end, um, the name of Jesus removed from the lips of anyone and everyone, and, and the church destroyed. But God's plan is the church. It always has been. And you can't thwart God's plan. But he also has a plan for Paul, and that plan means, look, you're going to not just believe this gospel, but you're going to be a messenger of this gospel to Jews and to Gentiles all over the place. Paul, and again, we've made this point as well, Paul's not looking for Jesus here. He's not looking to for salvation. He's not looking to be saved by Christ. He's not trying to figure out how to become a Christian. He thinks his, his relationship with God is just fine based on his obedience, his Jewishness, his Phariseeism. He's staunchly Jewish and more so than anyone else. And so God surely is pleased with him because he's the best of the favored people in his mind. We can't miss God's sovereignty in salvation in this passage. Paul was chosen from before the foundation of the world to come to saving faith in Christ and to be a messenger of that same gospel. He would be Jesus' instrument for growing the church, for proclaiming the gospel of Christ to Jews and to Gentiles. We see God's sovereignty and authority in saving sinners and bringing unbelievers to saving faith in Christ. The word conversion. It's that word we use as, as Christians to talk about that, that point in time, that, that day, that moment when we got converted, when we first believed in Jesus and the old became the new. We say so-and-so got converted. It's a word that means change. You go buy, I don't think you can buy, can you buy conversion vans anymore? You, you go buy a conversion van and it's, it's shaped like a van, but you get inside and there's like plush carpeting and captain's chairs that swivel and 
picnic tables and stuff that you can set up in there. I guess now people are buying vans and converting them uh, into sort of mini off-the-grid camper vans. It's putting a bed in there that you can sort of fold up and move out of the way so you can still carry your bicycles and a, and a kitchen or a stove and a fridge. and It means we're taking something that that was just a regular van and and turning it into something different. It's changed, it's converted, it's different. That's Paul's point here. Paul's point is that in a moment, in an instant, the moment he responded in faith to Christ's call to repentance, the old man died and Paul became a new man, a changed man, a converted man. Look, that, that's what happens to people who believe the gospel. That's what happens to people who trust in Jesus for their salvation. The gospel changes us. Christ changes us. He makes us different. The old is gone. The new has come. Such were some of you, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul writes in Ephesians 2. There is a new man. Paul is now new. And, and with that, he then became a, a messenger of the gospel in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles. The, the very people Paul wanted to destroy within just like that, you turn the page and like that, he's now proclaiming that gospel, encouraging and equipping those people, loving and caring for those same people. The old, the new, what about you? See, Paul's not defending himself. Paul's not arguing a legal matter before Agrippa. Agrippa can't decide the case. All he can do is help Festus write his letter, write his report that will get sent back to Caesar. Paul's not guilty. Nobody's found him guilty. Everyone so far has said, we think he's innocent. We don't find him guilty of anything. But here's the thing. Paul has an audience. And when Paul has an audience, he has one thing on his mind. And it's not his chains. It's not that he's sleeping in a jail cell. It's not that he's been held for two plus years for nothing. Even as a Roman citizen, which is at least borderline illegal. The one thing on Paul's mind is Jesus. He has an audience. Some of them are new, at least new to that room, new to hearing him preach the gospel. And so he will preach Jesus. Look, this should be our goal. Anytime we share our testimony, our goal isn't just to talk about us. Our goal isn't to say, well, I was like this and now I'm like this. The goal is to point people to Jesus. 
They're not saved by our testimony. They're not saved by our change. We don't want them to walk away saying, well, man, those, that guy's really impressive because he used to be really bad and now all of a sudden he's not. And I, I think that's really cool that he's kind of gotten himself cleaned up. We don't want that. Jesus is the one who has changed us. Jesus is the one who can change them and we want to point people to Christ. In fact, Paul sort of makes a significant shift, verses 22 and 23 in particular. He goes from telling his story, sharing his story, which even when he mentions King Agrippa in verse 19, he's like, look, I wasn't disobedient to this heavenly vision. I did this and I did this. And I went there. Verse 22, it shifts a little bit. To this day, I've had help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great. Governor Festus, King Agrippa, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would be the light to our people and to the Gentiles. He shifts from telling his story to preaching Jesus. And he appeals to the Old Testament. Look, the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, have said this already. Jesus fulfills all that the Old Testament anticipated. And, and that's the basis for the gospel message. That's the basis for Paul's hope. It's the basis for trusting in Christ. It's the basis for his preaching to Agrippa even here in this passage. It's the basis for this hope in the gospel both for Jews and for Gentiles. And he actually tries to get Agrippa converted. Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And there's that verse in, if you know the King James, the King James says, you almost persuade me to be a Christian, verse 28. Um, the, the New American Standard, the NIV, the ESV, they all use something like this. In such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa's not saying, I'm so close. He's saying, do you really think you can get me persuaded to believe in Jesus in this, just in one sermon? Agrippa, of course, has a lot to lose if he comes to saving faith in Christ. He, he, he's familiar with Judaism. He knows enough of the story. He is going to need more than that in order to believe. He just means he hasn't heard enough, that Paul hasn't said enough to convince him to be converted. But that doesn't stop Paul. Paul's greatest desire is that anyone within earshot of his voice would be like him. Not arrested, not in jail, but trusting in Christ. His chains, his arrest, walking free, being set free to go back home again, all of that pales in terms of importance. All of that pales in comparison 
to the eternal state of those who hear Paul preach Jesus. Can we say that? Can we say with Paul that we wish everyone is, were like we are except for these chains? Can we, can we truly say that our greatest desire isn't my own comfort, isn't for my car to work, isn't for my house to, to be bigger or more comfortable or air-conditioned or heated or my kids better or my dogs better or my job better or my co-workers better or my spouse better or my... Can we really say I, all of those things pale, my own creature comforts all pale in comparison to my desire that others would come to saving faith in Christ, regardless of who they are, regardless of his own condition, of my own condition. We would, that we want people to come face to face with the reality of their sin and the hope found in Christ Jesus. Let me make a few, I actually bear with me, I'm going to make seven applications from this passage. Uh, the first is this, conversion is just that. It's conversion. It's change. It's being different. The gospel changes us. And, and we should be able to see evidence of that change in our lives and in the lives of others around us. In part, that's why 1 John is written as a, as a test, as evidence for people's conversion. Paul shows us that the effect of the work of God's grace in our lives through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Word, it changes the lives of believers. Conversion is just that. It's change. Trusting in Christ affects our lives. It affects how we live. That's why we at Grace Covenant talk about the whole gospel for the whole person throughout the whole city to the whole world. We think the gospel is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card, but it changes the way we live our lives. A second application, uh, just to sort of glance real quick at verse 23, 22, 23, and then again at 27. Is our evangelism biblical? Again, Paul appeals, verse 22, the prophets and Moses said this would come to pass. And then he talks about Christ and Christ's death and suffering and death and resurrection which the Old Testament anticipates, the Old Testament tells us about. Then in verse 27, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Is our evangelism biblical? Are we actually proclaiming what Scripture says when we are evangelizing people? Or are we making up stories that are nowhere to be found in Scripture and manipulating the, the gospel in a way to make it palatable? It's sort of... Um, the Miracle Max, you know, cover it in some chocolate and, and make it go down easier and taste better. And, and then when they're converted, oh, and now, by the way, let me let you in on some secrets. But is our evangelism biblical? The Bible is, um, 
the foundation of the gospel message and the foundation for our, for Paul's evangelism. A third application, the gospel is for everyone. Okay, yes, uh, certainly in Paul's day, in, in Agrippa's day, in Festus Felix's day, yes, the gospel took root among those who were sort of poor and outcast and needy, but it's not only for them. Paul's standing in the midst of a, in the, in a courtroom, a hearing room with a governor, with a king who's living in sin with his sister, possibly wife sort of situation with Bernice. Paul wouldn't offer the gospel to a king if the gospel weren't for a king. The gospel's for everyone, small or great, he says in verse 22. Regardless of their status, preach Jesus. The gospel is for everyone. Fourth application. The gospel is for everyone. Agrippa's Jewish by birth. Bernice is his sister-wife situation. Uh, she had been married at 12, remarried at about 13 or 14, but now appears to be living with her brother Agrippa, who's the king, and as maybe his wife. Um, and, and Agrippa, of course, comes from a long line of evil, wicked Herod Agrippa names. You, that name comes up a lot. It's because there are a lot of them. Their wickedness doesn't exclude them from the possibility of salvation by Christ. Not only is the gospel for everyone regardless of their status, the gospel is for everyone regardless of their sinfulness. Everyone needs Jesus and nobody is so far gone that Christ can't reach them. To, to quote the Old Testament, God says, is my arm too short? A fifth application, the gospel's for everyone. I'm guessing that most of us have never stood before governors and kings or rulers or presidents or whatever and had opportunity to share the gospel. But I'm also guessing that most of us have had opportunities to share the gospel and we didn't. Family, friends, co-workers who aren't Christians, and who would uh, put Jesus, who would put you on trial um, if they could, if they were given the opportunity, and we've held our tongue. We cared more for our comfort. We cared more for our reputation. We cared more about what others would think of us than we did about their eternal soul. The reality is we need the gospel. The gospel isn't something just for you the first time you're converted, but we continue to sin and we need the gospel over and over again. Every time we're ashamed of Christ, every time we're ashamed of the gospel, every time we hold our tongue and refuse to love an unbeliever enough to introduce them to Jesus, 
Uh, every time we refuse to love Jesus enough to introduce him to these unbelievers. We need the gospel. Christ wasn't ashamed to be identified with us as a human, as a person, in the flesh. In his life and in his death, but who has conquered sin and death by his resurrection, which gives us hope for our own resurrection one day in the future. Sixth application, there will be people who make fun of us. There will be people who think we're totally off our rocker as Festus does in verse 24. Paul, you're so smart that you've gone loopy. You've got all this great learning and it's made you crazy. There are people who will count the cost and decide, as Agrippa does, that it's just not worth the investment. Believing in Jesus just isn't worth the cost. We have the words of life. We have the word of truth. We have hope in Christ. And this might be the number one reason we tend to be weak in evangelism. We're afraid of people, of what people will think of us. And this might be particularly true in an area of the country where everything really is rocket science, where everyone really is that smart. Looking to someone else to do for you that which you cannot do for yourself is tough for people in this world. But that is the very essence of the gospel. Looking to someone else, Jesus, to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. It's what we all need. That is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And lastly, seventh application, what about you? The gospel's for everyone. If you are not trusting in Christ and Him alone for your salvation, will you turn in faith to Him? The one who, as the Old Testament promised, came and took on flesh and lived a holy and righteous and sinless life that He might suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Will you turn to Christ and trust in Him for your salvation? Pray with me. Our great God and our King, we thank you for the hope of salvation in Christ and Him alone. We thank you that the gospel changes us, that it makes us different, that it that it takes the old and, and that you take our sin and throw it as far as east is from the west. You throw it behind your back, never to look at it again. We thank you that there is a new and that even though that new is not yet sinless, it is still nonetheless new. And so, Father, we pray that you would, would reach the lost 
that you would gather uh, the lost into your kingdom and that you would perfect your saints. You would equip us for ministry and service in your kingdom. And would you grow in us a hope of our own future resurrection to be with Christ for all eternity. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're going to respond to God's word with a hymn, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. The originally was awful, but we, we can't use that word anymore. Um, a, a, a hymn really that celebrates God's grace and our unworthiness, uh, his sovereignty and our unworthiness in our salvation, but also our own longing to see the churches full that all the chosen race might be gathered together to worship Christ. So let's sing together uh, hymn number 469, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. <laughs>